Well, amen. Amen. Well, hey, church, we're going to uh, continue in a study that we've been in now for a few weeks uh, as we're walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so uh, if you haven't been with us for the last uh, few weeks, I'm going to give a recap uh, in a little bit. But for now, if you would just uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, we're going to be in verses 6 through 13 primarily. And while you're turning there, I just want to use this as an opportunity to kind of explain how we're doing this study uh, and just invite you to join in with us in a little bit deeper way maybe. We're uh, going basically chapter by chapter each week through the book of 1 Corinthians. And so uh, the reason why we do that is to give you an opportunity and why we tell you that ahead of time is so that you can be reading the chapter prior to coming here on Sunday mornings. Um, and really do a deep study along with us. So the idea would be next week you would read chapter 5. Uh, we would then preach and teach on chapter 5 next Sunday. Um, and then in your Bible groups, we would encourage you to join in a Bible group, um, you would dig in even more deeply to that passage. And so it's kind of different from what we did just recently where we read through the whole Bible as a church, where it's a very broad view. Um, but now we're just really digging in deeply to one book of the Bible. And so I just encourage you, if you haven't yet, uh, kind of been following along in that way. We're only four chapters in out of 16, um, so it's not too late to do that. And I think that it'll be uh, really impactful to kind of walk through God's Word uh, that way and, and to do it as a church family. And so uh, I just want to invite you to participate in that with us. Um, so with that being said, you should have had time to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, so I'm just going to read verses 6 through 13 together. And then we'll pray, and then we'll kind of walk through a little verse-by-verse verse of, of God's Word afterwards. But it says this, starting in verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us, and I wish you did reign so that, I, so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people." Verse 10, we are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, uh, we respond graciously. And even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. Let's pray over the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Lord, we love you. And God, we just thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the fact that you have freely given us these words that we can open without fear of, of, of anything uh, and just come safely to you for refuge. And so I just pray, God, that as we walk through these verses that uh, you would uh, allow any obstacle that might be uh, around us or any obstacle within us, Lord, just to be removed and that we see you clearly, we hear you clearly, we feel you clearly, and we leave having been uplifted by the power that only comes through you and through your word um, as it is living and breathing and active. Um, and so God, any word even that I preach that's, that's from my own mouth, God, I pray that it would fall short, that no one would hear it, Lord, but every word that comes from your mouth, uh, God, let it pierce the innermost parts of our hearts 
and let us be transformed together as one community, one body under you, um, drawn closer and closer as, as better participators of your mission. So Lord, we give you this time. We just ask that you do it the way you will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, what I'd like to do is give a little bit of context. As we've kind of said the last few weeks, the cool thing about going through a book of the Bible is that you get to, it's, it's a letter. This book in particular is a letter. And so we get to kind of read it as it was written. And it wasn't written in, you know, one weekly increments. You know, it was written at one letter that they then studied as a, as a connected um, piece of teaching for their particular church. And so um, just to give a little recap as to what brings us to chapter 4 in the scripture we just read, um, Paul starts off this letter um, by really acknowledging their, their Christianity, acknowledging that they were believers, but then saying that their actions weren't, weren't evident of their salvation, meaning that they were doing things that Christians ought not do. And so he lovingly points that out and basically says throughout the rest of this letter, I'm going to teach you what the evidences of salvation are. And so then in chapter 2, we see the first evidence that he mentions, which is putting on the mind of Christ, right, which we define as a desire to both know God and make God known. Uh, that will be the mind of Christ. Everything's filtered through those two desires, so knowing God and making God known. And then in chapter 3, he moves from the, the mind of Christ to the, uh, the idea of spiritually growing in Christ, right, which would simply be growing in the mind of Christ, which is a, a, a growing in your knowledge of who he is, but also growing in your desire and ability to obediently make him known as well, right? So those are the first two evidences, right? So the mind of Christ and, and the, the growing in Christ, or the spiritually maturing in Christ. And that leads us then to today, chapter 4, the title of the message uh, from these verses. I'm just going to call it humility. Um, but what makes this part interesting, Paul kind of uh, takes a little bit of a detour. And what I mean by that isn't that he stops talking about evidences, but he kind of presents a, an obstacle uh, to what he's already talked about, right? So he said, put on the mind of Christ. He said, you ought to be spiritually growing in Christ. And then he gets to chapter 4, and he presents a, the first obstacle, really, to doing those things, and how, as a church, they can overcome those obstacles, right? And so we'll find that, or we'll see that a little more clearly um, in verse 6, uh, which kind of is the summary verse for the rest of this passage. Um, but let's read it all together, and then we'll break it down in more detail. Verse 6, it says, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. Now, there's a few key parts to this verse, but notice that he starts off, just like he did in chapter 1, by saying, brothers and sisters, right? And so even though Paul is about to point out an obstacle that has been preventing and keeping them from having the mind of Christ and growing in Christ, so he's, he's offering some discipline, um, but he's doing it in a loving way, right? He's acknowledging them as brothers and sisters, right? Which is what we would call one another, brothers and sisters, members of one family in Christ, specifically here for us at ABC, specifically for them within the church at Corinth, right? And so, so he's almost just prefacing, like, look, I'm about to call you out, Right? But I'm doing so lovingly because you're my family. Right? Family doesn't watch each other head down a bad road and not say anything. Right? You lovingly correct. You lovingly point those things out. And so, so he's speaking lovingly to family. And then notice that he says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollo. So the logical question would be, well, what are these things? What are the, these things that Paul is applying to himself and Apollos? And we know contextually 
having just gone through chapter 2 and just gone through chapter 3, that these things is referring to the evidences that he just taught the church of Corinth, right? The, the mind of Christ. So he's saying, I've applied the mind of Christ to myself and Apollos, and I've applied the, the, the desire to spiritually grow in Christ to myself and Apollos. Those are the, these things that he's talking about. But it's also interesting that he says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. Meaning that you cannot have them and then have them, right? They can be non-applied, but also that they can be applied things, which means they're spiritual disciplines, right? They're evidences of salvation, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, right? And so, and so Paul says, I've applied them. And that Greek word for applied is actually a really interesting word. It can almost more clearly mean like transform. The preface for that word is meta, which is where we would get like, you know, metamorphosis or, or to, to transform or to change, right? And, and so the idea that it's to transform doesn't mean that it's just some willful act on Paul and Apollos' behalf, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. This isn't a thing where Paul is saying, look, I've applied these things by my own willful power, right? But rather, I've been transformed because I have the power of the Holy Spirit in, inside of me, working in and through me, right? And so, so again, Paul, speaking to brothers and sisters, Right, is, is putting on the mind of Christ and the, the growth and maturity in Christ, not by his own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he does that so that, which is the next part of verse 6, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. So he's doing it as an example. Right? He's doing it in part because he, he needs it himself, but also as one who's been appointed as, a, as an elder over that church or, an, or a, a teaching apostle along with Apollos, is that they're setting an example for that church to follow. And the example is to follow saying nothing beyond what is written. Meaning we follow these words and these words only. Right? If it doesn't point back here in some way or another, then we are pursuing something we ought not be doing, which is exactly what the church at Corinth had been struggling with. Right? We saw it in verse 1 and 2, and they were saying, or chapters 1 and 2, and they were saying, they were arguing, there was division, they were saying, well, I belong to Paul and I belong to Apollos. Right? They were applying teachings beyond God's word that was affecting whether or not they were demonstrating, living out the evidence of their salvation in Christ. And so Paul's pointing all this out, right? And he's, he's acknowledging this to the church. And then he gives us his purpose in doing it, which is nice, right? We don't have to, you know, kind of discern cleverly. We just get to see it. He says at the end of verse 6, the purpose is, right? The purpose in all of this is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. So the purpose in Paul doing all that he's done, speaking to the family of Christ, putting on the mind of Christ, uh, growing in his faith, being an example for the believers by the power of the Holy Spirit, is so that they can, can avoid the obstacle of arrogance, or maybe better understood for us today is, is pride. Is that they had a pride obstacle that was preventing them uh, from living the way they ought to live as Believers. That's his purpose. He's addressing that as the first obstacle in doing the, the task that, that has been commanded. And so what I want to do is I want to give a main point kind of around that idea. And then we're going to walk through how we can do that in the rest of the verses that follow. And so the main point is this. It's, it's simple. But it says, humility is a spiritual discipline. Humility is a spiritual discipline that ensures living a spiritually evident life. Humility is a spiritual discipline 
that ensures we live a spiritually evident life. And you may be wondering, how do we just jump from arrogance or pride to humility? Uh, maybe you weren't wondering, they're, but they're, they're opposite words. And, and the reason why that's significant and important is rarely in God's word does he tell you not to do something, and then that's the end of the story. Right? Usually when God says, don't do this thing, what he's also telling you is to do this other thing. Right? Meaning, don't just not do bad things, but also do good things. Right? And so we're not just not being arrogant and prideful, but we are then being humble right? and putting on humility. Right? You, you combat the arrogance with humility. Right? You can't just say, I'm not going to be arrogant, unless you're actively putting on the, the, the spiritual discipline of humility. It's, and, and so we see this. I'll just, I'll just give this verse as, a, as an example for us to kind of start with. James chapter 4. Verse 6, and we're actually going to read a couple of different parts of this verse. Um, but this particular part is quoted actually by James, but from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, where he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be opposed by God. Right? Who, who of us would stand in face of the opposition of God? None. Right? Which means we ought to desperately seek humility. Right, because grace is offered to those who are humble. And so, if humility is what combats arrogance and pride, which Paul is saying is an obstacle to putting on the mind of Christ and growing in Christ, right, and we know that it's a spiritual discipline, meaning it's something that you can grow in and get better at, then the logical question is, well, how can we practice humility? How can we practice the spiritual discipline of humility? And Paul gives, I believe, three different ways we can do that, um, just in the remainder of our text this morning. And so we're going to read verses 7 through 13 in three different chunks, but what I want to preface with is so interesting. I love Paul's writing here, because he kind of gets, he starts speaking very uh, sarcastically uh, and very rhetorically, meaning he's, he's kind of just using this, this sarcasm and, 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 and just rhetorical questions to kind of make his point. But they also kind of have a double meaning when he does it, right? So he's, he's kind of being outlandish in his claims to make it obvious how ridiculous they're being, right? But he's also speaking and phrasing them in a way that offers Christian biblical truth as well. And so you'll see what I mean in just a moment. But let's, so starting with verse 7, right? This is where he kind of starts with the rhetorical questions. He says, says, for who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Right? So none of those questions are questions that Paul is actually asking an answer from them. Right? It's more to say, or to point out the fact that they are living wrongfully. Right? Specifically, forgetting the fact that God is the creator of all things. Right? Nothing they have was given or, or made by themselves. It was given by any other source or any other God. It was given by the one true God. So the first way we can put on the discipline or grow in the discipline of humility is simply by remembering who our creator is. And that might sound really simple, uh, but it's, the Bible is littered with this idea and, and of God being creator, which leads then to our humbleness. The, the more we understand what it means that God has created literally all things, the more humility we will then have as a result. Let me give some examples found in Scripture. And again, we could spend the rest of today just citing Scripture that referred to God as creator God. But let me just give a few. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, also Paul is the writer. He says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. He 
visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. I love how he starts listing a bunch of things that God created, and then by the end he's like, you know what? He just created all of it, right? Because he couldn't possibly list everything because it's infinite. God's infinitely created all things. John chapter 1, verse 3 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Or Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. It couldn't be said any more clear in Scripture that God wants us to know that he has created all that there is to create. And again, because it's infinite, we could literally never run out of things to, to say that God's created. But let me just boil it down to two things. And the reason I want to boil it down to two things that God's created, because there's two primary areas where pride or arrogance can display itself. Right, so the two things that God has created are you and me, right, individual people, and then everything else. Right, those are the two categories, because what are the two categories that we often have pride in? We have pride in our own selves, right, our abilities or, or, or who we are. Right? We can be prideful and puffed up and arrogant in, in our own self or our knowledge or our skills or our, how good we are our profession or all kinds of things that are within Right? And the other thing we might be, or have a propensity to be prideful in uh, is the things around us. Right? Our, our, either our life circumstance we can be prideful in, the, 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 the things we have, the materials, the, the job. The, right? So it's either pride typically comes from within or it's based on the things around us. And so it's important for us to know that God created all of it. Right? One, he created you and he created all the things around you. And how can we be prideful when, when we had nothing to do with the thing that our pride is coming from. Does that make sense? Right? If, if God created us, who are we to be prideful in who we are? Right? Or if God created the things that we have, who are we then to be prideful in the things that we have? Let me share a quick story. Um, from, it's from the book of Job. I'm just going to read a few different parts. Um, but I don't know that any story depicts this better. But Job basically lost everything. He lost, in a lot of ways, who he was. He lost a lot of his own, he faced physical health things. He lost his family. He lost his stuff. He lost everything. And he spends the, the most of the book of Job kind of venting and just working through what that means in light of who God is and who he is. And he's just kind of struggling and talking with friends through it. And it leads to this last conversation where God responds by saying this. In chapter 37, verses 4 through 7, he says, He says, where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So God is saying, where were you when all things were created? And Job responds humbly by saying, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not reply twice. But now I can add nothing. And then God responds again, giving all, listing all the things that he had created, all the things he's done, all the things that Job had no part in. And Job responds again in chapter 40, verses 2 through 6. He says, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is the one who conceals my counsel with ignorance? 
Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, uh, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, listen to this, I reject my words and I'm sorry for them. He says, I am dust and ashes. You see, we acknowledge God as creator of all things and us as simply the created. It gives us no grounds for pride. It gives us no grounds for arrogance. And it can sound like a bad thing or it can sound like a self-deprecating thing, but it almost should be. And what I mean is if you put us up next to who God is, it's going to make us seem insignificant, to use Job's words, or like dust and ashes, to use Job's words. Right, so it removes all pride and it removes all arrogance and replaces it with humility because we know we are, we are nothing on our own because we've simply been created by God and the things we have are things that have simply been created by God. And so instead of taking pride in things created, both self and things around us, we ought to take pride in the one who created them. Again, for us to have humility is to take pride in who God is which we practice simply by remembering that he is our creator. As we walk through life and, and, and do the things of life, simply reminding ourselves in all that we see, all the people we see, all the things that we see, man, God created all of it. So that's the first, the first practical point that Paul gives for putting on the, the spiritual discipline of humility, which leads then to the second, which is found in verse 8 which is simply remembering not only that he is the creator, but remembering also what that creator has given to us. So remembering that he's creator, but also remembering what we've been given. Verse 8 says, You are already full. You are already rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us, and I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. You see, church, here what Paul is doing, and again, he's kind of doing this this really creative kind of double meaning. Uh, it's half rhetorical and sarcastic, but the other half is, is speaking to the life of a believer, right? And the half that's kind of sarcastic is saying, guys, you're taking pride in all these things, so, you know, you're already full. You're already, uh, you're already rich, right? But the, the Christian side of what Paul is saying is that, that even though you're saying that wrongfully, it's actually true you're just saying it for all the wrong reasons, right? The reasons you ought to be saying it are for the things that God's actually gifted you, right? Not the, the status or the, or the things or who your teacher was or, or what beliefs. It, no, it was, it was all, all the things that God has given. And so not only have we, again, been created, but that creator has given us everything we could possibly need. Right, let me just list a few things that we've been given, and again, we could spend our whole time here walking through these different things, but, but one, we've been given life. Right? Without God as the one who created us, we would not have the gift of life at all. The fact that we are living and breathing is a gift from God. Genesis 1.27, made in his image, in his likeness. We've also been given grace, right? because in our life, we didn't appreciate that gift, and so we rebelled against God, meaning we needed grace to be forgiven by God, and, and what did God give? He gave us grace. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says we've been given a greater grace, right? Where sin is great, his grace is greater. So we've been given more than enough grace that we could ever need to cover the sins of our rebellion. We've been given life, we've been given grace, we've been given 
hope for eternal life. John 3.16, almost perhaps the most famous verse in all of Scripture. Right? Life, grace, eternal life. But what about what do we do in the meantime while we're waiting for that eternal life? Well, he's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? To give us power and endurance and strength to, to, to seek him and pursue him until that day where we get to be with him in eternity forever. So we've been given, church, life, grace, eternal life, the Holy Spirit. What else is there? What else do we need? Right? And as he says, none of these things are things that we earned. They were things that were freely given. Right? If someone gave you something for free, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to brag about that thing. Right? Because you didn't do anything to get it. Right? We have done nothing to, to earn life, to earn grace, to earn eternal life, to earn the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And so who are we to boast in anything except for whom, him who gives the gifts? And here's the thing, and this is, this is an important kind of side point, is that when he gives us these gifts, he doesn't give any of them in part. He gives all of them in full. And what I mean by that is that he doesn't just, when you recognize who he is and what he's done, he's surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He doesn't just say, you know what, I'm going to give you a little bit of Holy Spirit, but if you're not in the Word every day, you're going to lose it. Right? He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a little bit of hope for eternal life, but you've got to really be digging into Scripture or else you're going to lose it. No, all of it is fully free. That's why when he says, you are already full, Yes, he's sarcastically pointing out the fact that, that they're filling themselves up on worldly things, but he's also spiritually making the claim that, that you've already been given the fullness of the Holy Spirit, right? He's talking to Christians. You've already been given a fullness of the hope of eternity set before you. You've already been given a grace that is infinitely greater than the sins that you have committed, are committing, and will commit in the future. You've already been given the gift of life fully because you're fully alive right now. Yet we're so prone to forget those things. And oftentimes it comes out, I don't even think it comes out intentionally necessarily, but it comes out kind of subconsciously, even the way that we view things like church. Right? And I made the point, I've made the point several times, but, but oftentimes we view church as a place where you go to get full. Right? And so what happens is churches become kind of consumeristic, right? Where it's like, well, this church has this thing I really like, and it's got this thing I really like, it's got this thing, so I can fill up on all those different things, right? When in reality, is that's not what church was meant to be. The church wasn't meant to be a place that fills people up. The church was meant to be a place where we collectively remind ourselves, like Paul is saying here, that we're already full, right? And you, you remind yourself that by being in the Word, by spending time in prayer, by being in community, both corporately together as a large group, but also small groups that meet at different times throughout the week and different days, holding one another accountable, uh, selflessly giving, right? All the things that we value as a church are things that aren't meant to fill us, rather things that remind us of the fullness of the gifts God has already given. But we often forget, which then can lead to pride and can lead to arrogance, Right? Because you see, if I'm just three quarters of the way full and I got to fill myself up the last quarter, then that means I, there's room for me to take pride in that quarter that I fill up. Whereas if God's already topped it off fully, then there's no room for me to take credit for anything that he's done. Therefore, pride can't exist. And we simply humbly say, man, God has given all the gifts. 
I'm just the humble recipient. And so again, instead of taking pride in the gift, we ought to take pride in the gifter. Just like we don't take pride in the created, but we take pride in the creator. Which we again practice simply by remembering all the gifts that he's given. Right? I gave four, but they're infinite. Yes, he's given life, he's given grace, he's given the Holy Spirit, he's given uh, eternal life and, and, and hope for eternal life. But his gifts are infinite. We can look around for five minutes and come up with a hundred more. And a practice of doing that daily puts us in a state of humility, which then puts us in a better position to put on the mind of Christ, to grow in Christ, and to demonstrate the evidences of Christ. So that was the second, which leads us to our final discipline for practicing humility, um, which is remembering not only that God is creator and not only that God is giver, but also that God is simply all that we need. And again, that can sound broad and uh, just like a cliche statement, but it has got deep truth to it, which Paul points out in the next, in the next five verses, verses 9 through 13. He says this, For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die, we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. And you see... Again, Paul is kind of speaking in, in double meanings to a degree, right? Because he's already said in, the, in verse 8 that, well, they are rich. Like, he is rich in Christ, right? He is full in Christ. Yeah, the circumstances or, or what the world would, would look at them and say would be otherwise, right? And so look at just the, some of the characteristical differences between the Corinthians and, and Paul and the apostles. Right? The Corinthians were, according to the world, they were wise, strong, distinguished, well-nourished, clothed. They were treated well. They were sheltered, etc. And then what about Paul and the apostles? According to the world, they were fools. They were weak. They were dishonored. They were hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and homeless. That's according to the world, though. What about according to, to Christ? What about in Christ? See, despite the differences of circumstances, Paul and Apollos had demonstrated the evidences of salvation that the Corinthians had not. So the reason he's pointing out all these worldly differences, saying we haven't had homes or food or, or, or shelter or clothes or any of those things, and you guys have, yet we're still demonstrating the evidences of Christ, is because for us it's not based on our worldly circumstance, but rather our heavenly circumstance. And again, we're already rich in Christ. We already have the things we want. So even though, according to the world, it may look like we have nothing, we're still able to rejoice and, again, live evidentially as Christians should because of the hope that we have. All right, so let's kind of flip the script, right? Because that's what humility does. It flips the script entirely. And so the Corinthians were, they were earthly wise, but spiritually foolish. They were earthly strong, but spiritually weak. Earthly distinguished, but spiritually dishonored. Earthly well-nourished, but spiritually hungry and thirsty. Earthly they were clothed, but spiritually they were poorly clothed. 
Earthly, they were treated well, but spiritually, they were roughly treated. Earthly, they were sheltered, and spiritually, they were homeless. But then look at Paul and Apollos. They were earthly considered fools, but spiritually, they were wise. Earthly weak, spiritually strong, earthly dishonored, but spiritually honored. Earthly hungry and thirsty, but spiritually, they were nourished and well fed. Earthly, they were poorly clothed, but spiritually, they were clothed and provided for. Earthly, they were roughly treated, but spiritually, they were treated well. And earthly, they might have been homeless, but they were spiritually sheltered, knowing where their final home was. And again, what's the only difference between the two? Is that they knew they had all that they needed. Whereas the Corinthians thought that they needed those things. Alright, one of the most famous passages, or famous verse in Scripture, Philippians 4.13, it says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Alright, and it's a great verse, but the context of that verse is right here. It's saying that I can do all things depending on all the things that God needs me to do based on my circumstances. Meaning, if I don't have anything, that's fine. I, I know what it means to have little, I know what it means to have much, is what Paul says to the church at Philippi in chapter 4. It's because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me that it doesn't matter what my earthly circumstance is because God is the only one that I need. And so instead, again, of talking or taking pride in our, our needlessness, meaning we don't need anything because we've got it all taken care of, we take pride in our neediness of God and God only. And it's a neediness that only God can fulfill. The world today, people look to fill themselves up with all different kinds of things, and, and some it'll last for a little bit, some it won't. Some it will be, they'll be so full by worldly things, it'll be a reason to take pride in those things. Right? But the only thing that lasts eternally is God and God alone and those who have put their hope and faith and trust in him. At least on the right side of eternity. And so again, this last, this last thing that we remember, we simply practice by remembering that, that God is all we need. When we feel anxiety or stress because we feel like we're lacking in earthly things, it doesn't mean that we won't get that thing or that, that God won't provide that thing. It just means that we don't really need it. Worst case scenario, you have no shelter, no food, no, no money, no nothing, but you have God, your eternity set. You don't really need anything else. Right? Again, God might provide those things for you. I would venture to say that in most cases he will. But even if he doesn't, he's all we need. We've got to remember that in every single thing that we do. And so as we close this morning, I want to invite the worship team to come back up. I want to challenge you with a couple of things. Um, first and foremost, I just want to ask, do you feel as though pride or arrogance is an obstacle for yourself based on how we've kind of defined it this morning? Because again, my hope as we go through this book or this letter to the church at Corinth isn't that we look at their church and say, oh man, their church was really bad, but we got everything going over here. But rather, man, we can learn from them. And we can learn to avoid or, or to run from arrogance and pride and instead run to humility and who God is. And so if you've found yourself struggling with that this morning, my prayer, my hope, and as we have this time of invitation, is you simply just lay that down. Um, because humility does something pretty powerful. It, as I said, it flips the script on everything. 
which is what makes, again, Paul's words so unique that they were kind of dual-meaning statements, right? Sarcastic on this sense, but biblically true on this sense that, that some of us were in that kind of sarcastic realm where we're pursuing all these worldly things and we're losing sight of what's important, right? But, but the, the script can be flipped simply by putting on humility. And I think there's probably some of you in here that just need your script flipped. You need the tables of your life to be turned, right? There's something wrong, something missing. Whether you've been following Jesus or not, you just know here this morning that something needs to change, right? And if that's you, I just want to prayerfully invite you um, to respond this morning, however the Holy Spirit leads. If you are not a Christian, surrendering your whole life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, a, a deep commitment to radical change, whatever that means. Literally, nothing's off the table, right? Because all we need is God, the one who created all things and has given us already all the things that we need. And again, I know a church that looks like that is going to be a church that does a lot for God's kingdom, both in knowing who he is and in making him known in the community around us. So wherever you fall on that spectrum, we're going to have a time of invitation uh, we're going to sing together, praise the Lord together. Um, and I'm going to be up here at the front. If you would like to have someone to talk with or pray with, please do. Um, but again, regardless, we all must respond one way or another this morning uh, to God's commission and God's words um, to be drawn closer to him. So I'm going to pray and then invite you to stand and sing with me.